The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Roadwire Fantasy Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, James Anderson, and this is the first episode of our off-season coverage and my guest has already done some drafting. Uh, I've already done some drafting, and uh, I think it's it's exactly where we're going to start, just early ADP, market trends, stuff like that. Uh, Zach Waxman, uh, who you may know from the Draft Champions podcast. Uh, how are you doing, Zach? What's up? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate you taking the time. Um, Anytime. You know, I, think, I think you're... You've probably done more drafts than anyone so far uh, since NFPC opened things up. You think that's accurate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's correct. <laughs> um, I mean, you so you had the you you had your own early ADP that you'd kind of um, you know put together yourself just from being in a bunch of drafts and that's right. having guys like John Fish uh, send you results and stuff like that. And then NFPC dropped the ADP, uh, what, probably like a day or two after you finished putting together your own ADP. Yeah. But they're behind because yes. uh, I think, I think there's like three drafts, if I'm not mistaken, maybe there might be four now. It's, it's four. It's been four. I keep checking to see if it's more. Yeah, it's four. I got, I got eight or nine going and there's sort of like a running list. So what I do is I have them all set up as columns and every time that I I'm up in a draft. I'll just go to the draft results and I'll just copy and paste it in there. And I got my formula that I put paste it in and then I'll just sort it by blank values and it'll get me the highest ranked players from ADP. And it's sort of like a, so it's a work in progress. Well, that's um, awesome. Uh, you're, you're way ahead of me, but I, I've got a, got a problem myself. I joined my third draft. I saw that. Oh, I thought, I didn't know. The, I didn't know it was your third. Yeah. Yeah. I got I, it. I saw you in that one. Yeah, uh, I was I actually don't recognize uh, Gialdi. I recognize, um, mm-hmm. but I didn't recognize too many people in this one. But uh, yeah, I did the fa- I did one of um, Mike the Mouth's fast drafts, and then this is my third. And then you and I were both in that uh, Rob DiPietro's uh, first one. Right. Yeah. But uh, I don't think I was in. I mean, I'm way ahead of my pace just by being in three right now. Uh, I think I'm going to, I've told myself that I'm, I'm done after this one um, for a month or so. Uh, but I just, you know, put in, you know, a decent amount of work uh, kind of making some, you know, lists and stuff like that through the first two. And I was like, I don't want to let it all go to waste. And now that I'm kind yeah. of 
fine tuning things. So I had to hop in another one. I know how you feel because it's like, if you feel like you have an edge in one way or another, uh, albeit with your, but the work that you did or with me having, I guess, uh, over two times the sample size of ADP versus anyone else, or just thinking you're smarter than someone else because you, you think there's a market inefficiency, then you want to get into it. And that's what the problem was with me last year. It's like, you always, <laughs> you always think you have some sort of edge in one way or another, and, and you just got to keep um, utilizing that edge. But what, the fact, uh, the fact of the matter is you, you don't always have that edge that you think you do. <laughs> yeah. And, and I don't, I don't think I have an edge. Uh, I just, you know, I, I, it's just one of those things where it's just so much fun. Happening. Yeah. That's, and, that's a lot of it too. Right. It's just so um, much fun. So you, how many total, <laughs> um, fab leagues and non-fab leagues did you do <clears throat> last year for NFBC? So at NFBC, I was in 106 leagues. Um, I was in 36 fab leagues, seven best ball and 63 draft and hold style leagues, which could include like any random like industry shit or like uh, $50 leagues. Mm-hmm. And was that the most by anyone, 106? I don't even know. I don't even think it was the most. There's the two people that come to my mind. Well, no, Heberlig. Heberlig probably would have done okay. more than me. I think he's well over that. And I think Bobby Big Bucks was close, if not more. He was, it was close. And then um, Jimmy G, Jimmy Gable, was pretty close to me as well. So I'd say the four of us had the most. And Fish is not super far behind. Fish probably had a higher – he probably had a higher investment than I did, like in terms of money. Hmm. Yeah, Fish was Fish was going to – we were going to do a three-man with, with Fish, but he's under the weather. Um, but uh, – yeah, that's Heberlig and and Bobby Big Bucks definitely good names to to mention there because I I know I was in at least one or two yeah. with with both of them. And Bobby Big Bucks is already in one I saw, um, and he didn't start till a little bit later last year, so he could he could find himself with a problem this year. <laughs> yeah, um, so you I I think I I think I've heard you mention on your podcast uh or maybe you told me or or mentioned it in like a group chat or something are you scaling back a little this year i'm going to try um so right now i've uh, either completed or i'm in the middle of six draft champions leagues so at this point in last last year i had done two so i'm on pace for 300 leagues <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh i mean i get uh Obviously, you're spending a ton of time on Mondays and Fridays and Sundays, even if you just were to cut it in half or you know drop it by even more than half. Uh, but was it is it kind of the the fab leagues you're looking to cut back on? Both um, the fab, it just you don't you don't have the time time and attention to, that you that that um, you can give to all those teams throughout the year. Like at points in time, like when it comes down to the last two weeks, yes, you, you want to look at everything and, and see what your opponents are doing and see what categories you need. But like I have to, like I think I've said this before, like like, you, like the $50 draft and hold leagues, the NFBC 50s, at the end of the year, I was going and seeing what categories I need. And I noticed like uh, I'm 30 saves ahead of second place. Like, what? Like I didn't even notice that because like I just I don't have time to look at all those like fifty dollar leagues and seeing what category how I am doing in all those categories. I'm like, man, I should have stopped playing my closers like fucking two months ago. Um, whereas also the fab is tough um, as well. Like on Sundays, that that has to it ha- like the fab copy feature is good. It's not perfect, and yeah, I just cannot 
do that many fab leagues and it really hinders your performance. I mean, that makes sense. I feel like I've been hindering my performance uh, by just doing like I, I, I set up probably a personal high of like 23 total leagues last year. And I feel like I would have been better if I'd just been in like 12 total leagues. Does that include like your dynasty leagues and stuff like that? Yeah. Yep. Yep. I was in 11 NFBC leagues last year. Those are tough. Those are tough to keep up with as well. I mean, it definitely, I mean like eight dynasty leagues too, which is like daily moves. It's like (laughs) people are like saying you're fucked probably right now, but like, um, yeah, I know that takes up probably more time to actually do well in those. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think my dynasty, um, you know, attentiveness and stuff like I didn't, I was never engaging people in trades or anything like that. I mean, not yeah. that I do that a ton anyway, but I just was strictly on like fab pickups and, Same. um, and even then, you know, like I'd miss a couple weeks here or there, like, um, because you, I mean, you can't miss weeks in, uh, redraft leagues, right? Like you no. can yeah, get away exactly. with it a little bit in dynasty, but you can't miss them in, in redraft. And, uh, I, you know, that you mentioned the fifties, I think this is probably going to be the biggest, uh, year ever for NFBC. And I would just recommend to, to anyone, you know, I mean, if you are listening to this and you are always hearing us talk about NFBC, um, I strongly, uh, recommend, I think it's the best game in, in fantasy sports and you can do those fifties. And it's just, you know, 55 bucks or something with the, the processing fee. And uh, so, I mean, that's 50, a 50, 52. It's, I think it's just two bucks for those $50. Okay. Leads. So, yeah. And I mean, those, yeah. they're so much fun. I mean, you, I guarantee if you do a, one of the NFBC 50s, you'll leave the draft liking your team. And uh, I remember <laughs> I did one and I was like, this is, this team's definitely going to win the league. <laughs> right after the draft. And so I entered into a, a 400 DC cause I was like, well, I'm paying for it with the, the winners of the <laughs> NFC. I just did. Um, That's awesome. it, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, it's a lot of fun. I mean, even if you're playing for just 50 bucks, but obviously they have <clears throat> the really expensive contest as well. And um, it's just, I can't recommend it enough. Um, just to, for, just to hit on your point there, like that, it's a good way to start your bankroll. If you don't have, if you don't have a big bankroll, those fifty dollars leagues. If you the winner gets four hundred bucks, second place gets a hundred bucks. So NFBC, they, they got to take their rate. But um, in comparison to the DCs, where like if, if you're not planning on placing in the overall, which is very difficult to place in the top like fifty or whatever, they they pay out. Um, that that they, the interleague payout, the inter the league payout, so the payout within that your single league is only 66.6%. Whereas like you're hitting over 80% or I think exactly 80% in those 50s. So it's a good way to build your bankroll. And um, man, you win one of those, you get an OC and uh, yeah, it's a good gateway drug. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I, you know, I know, you know, not everyone can, you know, afford to do even the you know 150 DCs, but it, it's still a lot of fun. And um, yeah, I, Definitely would recommend that. I think, you know, if you can afford to go to uh, Vegas and New York for the live drafts in March, I, that was one of the highlights of my year doing that for the first time uh, going to Vegas. So would recommend that as well. Um, have you, uh, I, I've heard you talking a little bit about the auctions on uh, some recent podcasts. You've had some, some really good guests 
uh, talking a little auction strategy and stuff like that. Have you, <clears throat> how many auctions did you play in this past year? And do you see that kind of breakdown of auction versus snake, snake draft uh, changing this year at all? Uh, I would do all auctions if I, if I had the choice. Um, they're, 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 they're a time investment, but I did, to answer your question, I think I did 14 of my 106 leagues were auctions. And um, I think 10 online auctions, I did two bigger auctions, and then I did two DC auctions, a 500 and a 150, or sorry, a 125. So those are, those are really fun. The, the DC auctions I love because um, you auction 23 players and then you, you, it's a snake round like uh, for the remaining 27. So it's like you're in, you, it's like chaos and, and so much action for the, like that four hour time, time period. And then you're, then you can relax and just snake the remaining 27. So I thought that was an awesome contest. Um, yeah. Like I'd love to do, I'd love to do auctions. I think they're like the, the, the Rolls, Rolls Royce of, of fantasy baseball and it's like chess to checkers um there's so much so much strategy you can get your guys whereas snake you can you can sort of be proactive to um exploit some inefficiencies or values but like um you're really mostly reactive to what kind of falls to you unless you want to jump adp whereas auctions you can be totally proactive and make a plan and say okay i know this player is going to be a value i know this player is not going to be a value so i'm going to nominate the player that you don't like first. Um, it's, it's just a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I, I definitely uh, have the the itch to do my first NFPC auction. Uh, I've been sort of more. I've been focused on trying to kind of get to a point as a as a snake drafter in like the OCs and main event and and DCs and stuff um, to where I feel really good about like how I'm how I'm doing in those. Um, but if, if you were to recommend like a first auction, like would you do one of the DCs or just one of the uh, like 250, 500? Um, I forget what they call those. The, 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 the cheap ones. Oh, the online auctions? Yeah. Um, I think you can go either either or. Like they're both, they're relatively the same price point. Like the DC auctions, 125. The, the online could be 150 or higher. Um, yeah. It's just a matter of what you're comfortable with, I guess, because you're like, if you don't want to do fab, then do the DC auction if you're comfortable with fab and do the online auction because you can um, correct your team if you make any mistakes in the draft. So it's, uh, yeah, they both got their pros and cons. Yeah. Uh, did you do, so yeah, you did some live, live ones in, in Vegas, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, what, how, was that your first year doing uh, live ones or have you done those before? No, it's my first time doing it. Um, it was a ton of fun. Um, I just had Jason DuPont on my podcast and we talked about auctions. He was one of the first people I met in Vegas. And uh, he said to me, he's like, be loud. And um, <laughs> like, I love it. Just yell it out. And I was just, uh, I was, I was making, I was making, uh, I was making fun for myself and just, uh, yeah, just a super fun experience. And um, it's not, the, on, the live is not much different than the online. It's just because you have your computer in front of you. And you can follow along on the computer the same way as you're, you're at home. Some people don't do that. Some people just have like are old school and just use paper. But really, it's like I was kind of worried because I'm like, how do I know what's what everyone has left in terms of their budget? Am I going to have to track everything? But it's like if you, you can bring your computer in there and it's it's the same. So have you are, were you witnessing in the, the live ones or, or even like the online ones, um, like either yourself or other people just really kind of you know, having the whole thing sort of fall apart where you're either leaving money on the table or you're the guy 
that is just overpaying for everyone in the middle rounds because you didn't buy enough good players early? Like, is that are those yeah. the, you know home auction mistakes still happening in in NFPC? Yeah, for sure, absolutely. I think there's one or two teams that, that screw up their team in every auction. Uh, like in the Vegas auction that I was in, I don't remember anyone really screwing that one up. I think everyone was like did a fairly decent job. But you do like in the Vegas live one, you hear people nominate players that have already been nominated, which which won't happen in with the software. But um, it, like I've done, I think I did ten of those online auctions. Like every like some of the auctions, like people are are screwed after like a couple of picks because they they blow their budget, and then you can tell they haven't done this before uh, in the NFBC because yeah, you can go uh, stars and scrubs in your home Yahoo league and though you have a five man bench or whatever, and you can filter through waivers. People aren't as, um, as sharp, but in the NFBC, it's just like, if you spend all your money on three, four players, you're going to have a really tough time. You have to, you have to be much more uh, cognizant of spreading your budget around in the NFBC. Did you find that, uh, I mean, I'm sure for a lot of the ones you, there were certain players maybe you, you wanted or, or just people that you thought were going to be really good values. Um, did you find that to be the case or more often than not were people on the guys that you specifically kind of wanted at a certain price? Yeah, usually everyone wants like the, the good players. Um, like in NF, NFBC, you're not going to – it's hard to find that – discount there's a couple gems that you could have found um last year um but it's few and far between um in these in these auctions go ahead well because it's like you know for the the snake draft there's that sort of you're playing chicken kind of with the Mm -hmm. adp so you know say um i really want nestor cortez and two other people really want Nestor Cortez. He's not up for auction. So we're not going to be bidding at each other, right? Like and pushing him up to seven or eight bucks. We're kind of waiting for the perfect spot, but like, you know, those types of players, like in an auction, like um, I could just, I could see it kind of sort of falling uh, apart. Like once you sort of start nominating um, the sort of, you know, guys that you really like after pick like 250 or something like that. Right. So those like, I'll call them like the industry sweethearts that everyone like love. Like, I don't know. I felt like Patrick Sandoval was kind of like that last year, Jordan Montgomery, those type of guys. Uh, the year before that you had Gosman and Musgrove. There's a couple of things that could happen in the auctions. Usually like if I, if I'm in on one of those guys, I don't want to nominate them because <laughs> if they get nominated early, they're, they're pretty much, they got a floor to them because you know that a couple of people are onto them. So no, they're never going to go super cheap. So you don't want to nominate them right away. Um, but at the same time, um, if they get nominated, say in the middle of the draft, it's all going to depend on like how much money everyone has, because those, if you, if you want to target, say Nestor Cortez and whatever, you think he's going to go for 10 bucks or whatever, that's what you want to spend on him. Um, there's a good chance you get him. There's a good chance you can get him for that. But if a couple guys have like a hundred dollars left and they've, they've sort of been saving their money and they don't want to overpay on anyone, it comes to talk, it comes to a point with these auctions where a lot of people have too much money left, and then say two or three of those guys want him. You're going to see a guy like Nestor Cortez go up to like 16 bucks, and it's going to be uh, I should have just bought a safe, reliable pitcher um, for maybe 18. Like I could have got somebody that's going in the first five or six rounds for 18 bucks, and I, I just for two dollars more, and and the value is completely gone. So I think hunting for value is pretty important in these auctions. 
and all these auctions go differently. And if you're a volume player like me, you don't want to be spending over the average auction value significantly over that average auction value on pretty much anyone, unless like the draft dictates it. Yeah, what, I mean, what I mean, what I mean by that is like, if, if like um, you're really, you need to, you need to figure positions, you need to fill your stats. So if, if those, you got to keep your eye on the supply, if the, if the supply of outfielders or stolen bases are going down, then yeah, sometimes you have to take that, pay that premium. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, man, I've really got the itch now. I want to be in, I want to be in Vegas doing a, <laughs> doing a live action. Um, all right, we're going to head to a quick message from our sponsors, but then uh, I'll talk about... Revive? <laughs> I'll talk about the uh, <laughs> the first uh, pick I might be able to make. Actually, probably won't be able to make in this, uh, this DC I just signed up for. Okay. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, so I mentioned I just joined my third DC, and uh, it was a it's a four hour clock. the The first ones I did were were not four hour clocks, uh, but the guy picking fourth has so far used uh, over three and a half hours <laughs> on his on his uh, fourth on the fourth overall pick. Um, so I I thought I might be picking thirteenth <laughs> and eighteenth live on the pod here. Uh, which would have been fun, but uh, that that probably isn't happening. It's not GLD, is it? No, it's uh, Gavin. Last name Gavin. All right, him. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I I always get a kick out of that. I I don't mind the you know I'm not a 
time police or anything like that on on the slow drive. Yeah, I'll joke around about it, but I really yeah. don't. I mean, I'm in for it once. So like, even like I joked around about our draft with Rob going slow. I really don't care. Um, it's because I'm I'm bar- like I'm barely keeping up myself. So so as long as, it, as long as it's not like four hours or three four hours, it's like whatever. Well, you I mean you can't sign up for a four hour slow draft and then complain when someone takes almost four hours. Um, so you had a you had a really good pod. Uh, I, I like the one with Dupont, um, uh, but the the one you had with Mike Mager and uh, Mark Winokur, uh, Mager asked you um, you know about diversification just because of you, you know how much volume you play with and just kind of uh, how much you you factor that in. And I think that obviously it definitely makes sense to diversify. Um, your exposure on guys, especially when you're playing that much volume, but sort of what, what kind of factors do you consider? Like, um, are there still going to be players that you have, you know, over 50% exposure to, even when you're playing, you know, that, that much volume, are there, are there players that are going, you know, top 30 and ADP that you end up with just zero shares of, even though you're playing in that many leagues, like what, what kind of goes into that? Yeah, I definitely have fades. And um, one of the things that like, I hear people talking about um, exposure and I only look at it from, I only look at it um, for me within, like if you're playing different overall contests, you're playing the DC or the fifties or the online auctions. I only look at them individually. So if I have say 50% of a player in the online auction, it's not going to affect me drafting in uh, the, the draft champions leagues. Like they, they, I think they're independent of each other. I can see where, a bunch of guys like a guy like a DuPont would be playing a lot of like high, high stakes leagues and they're all, all his leagues would be part of the same portfolio. But for someone like myself, like the main event, the DC and like the online auctions are all separate. So when I see, when I hear somebody like last year, I heard people say like, Oh, I, I, I'm not going to take Fernando Tatis at number two overall in the, in this one family because I took him in TGFBI. I'm like, what are you talking about? That makes no sense. Like there's no, like you're diversifying like some fab league against TGFBI, which you have no investment in. Like that's just an extreme example, but like if you, yeah, you know what I mean? Like I think it, it, it for me, it depends like on it. Diversification is um, depend is um, a standalone concept when, within each overall contest. And if you are playing an overall contest, there's diminishing returns um, to being a volume drafter. So unlike someone drafting like one or two or like three DCs, you shouldn't always get your guys. You need to draft, you need to value draft and to some extent diversify in the first few rounds. I don't want a watered down drink to quote Jimmy Gamble on my show. Like, so I was drafting Patrick Sandoval and Patrick Sandoval in every draft last year, everywhere I could. Um, however, as much as, as much as I love Buxton, I wasn't going to reach on him prior to round four in any of the, in any of the DCs. I never took him before round four in any DCs. Uh, because I let them, I let those come to me because I knew I was going to be a lot of drafts. Um, so the other thing about this, like volume drafting is like, it's three dimensional. I, I, like, I don't know if I can explain this properly, but I see it as sort of three dimensional. And what I mean is that you don't only have X percent of a player. You need to focus on when you got that player in terms of like when, like November, December, January, as the market shifts. So if I have a bunch of Dylan Cease last year in round six in December, I'm probably less inclined to draft him in round four in March, even though he might be my top available pitcher on the board, because I know that 
Um, I'm competing against myself and other, like I'm, I'm competing against not only like the 14 people in my league and everyone in the competition, I'm also racing against time because the whole market has shifted. That makes sense. Uh, I mean, that, that is, that is very 3d. Um, yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, if you, so can you give like sort of an example, like you would willingly just take a, a, would you go to like a different position then? Like if he's like your clear best pitcher? Yeah. Like, yeah, I would go to a different position. Like I wouldn't go. Yeah. I'd probably, I'd probably shift gears and um, not draft a pitcher because I was, I'm not going to go and take like, I would have taken like Pablo Lopez over Dylan Cease just because I'm just throwing out. Right, yeah. Pitches. No, that's, yeah. that's a good, that's a good. Yeah. I wouldn't do that, but um, I would probably just go and try and grab who else was in round four at that time last year. Somebody I like probably maybe a closer, maybe I'd, I'd, I'd take a closer instead. And I mean, you kind of touched on, I think sort of the, the best uh, aspect of volume drafting is just uh, the, the value aspect, because if you um, like, for instance, I've done two, I'm on my third, but like in my first two, I did not get uh, Brandon Fat, uh, a Diamondbacks pitching prospect in either draft, which really annoyed me. Um, and so I'm probably going to take him in this third one, um, like a, a round ahead of where he went in whichever one he went highest in. Um, but if you're doing 80 drafts, you can just, you know, you're going to get a guy like that in eight or nine or 10 of them probably just by them kind of falling into your lap. Right. But that's how ADP moves. You just explained it because you're not the only person doing that. There's, uh, there's, there's 15 other people entering a second draft, doing the same thing with probably like five different players each. And that's how you're going to see this ADP is just going to evolve because of that. That's exactly, it's, that's exactly what it is. Um, And that's um, yeah, that's, um, that's why you draft early. Right. I mean, that's why I did the third one is because I just, you know, I know that, and it's not, I don't, I'm not claiming to have like an edge or anything, but I just know I'll get more guys that I believe in doing a third one now than doing my third one, like around Thanksgiving. Um, yeah. I think one of your, one of, on the outline, you had a question. I don't know if you're going to get to it or not, but you said like, what advice do you have to be a volume drafter? And this is sort of a good transition to that like one of the pieces of advice that I could, that I could think of is get, if you're going to be drafting a lot of drafts, get in early because you won't see any bad, any, any better values on players than right now based on organic market inefficiency over time, the ADP shifts, but the closer you get to the season, it shifts in inorganically because of trades, injuries, signings, and like mining the news and stuff like that here. Like you just see so much like organic inefficiency. That's so get in early. That's, that's what I think. I think not that I did well in any, not that I did well in all my early drafts, probably the opposite, but um, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta get those, get those values, but you also got to construct a good team. And, and it's, it's, it's a balancing act of doing both. It's like value hunting, but you also want to make sure that you're not value hunting so much that you ignore all the main things you got to do to, to win a league. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, have you noticed like through these early drafts, have you 
I mean, it seems like things are happening faster than ever. Like there's more contests earlier than ever. Um, are you seeing, cause I know that you kind of have like a sort of a scouting report on a bunch of just people that play in the NFBC. Like you, you kind of know what certain players tendencies are and stuff like that. Have you seen, um, a lot of new names or is it mostly just guys that you recognize in these early drafts? It's a mix of both. I'd say it's like going into last year, I really didn't know many people at all. And I got to learn some of the people and actually got to talk to some people last year. Now there's a lot of, there's a lot of unknowns and um, there's not, there's not, there hasn't been a ton of overlap. Like I, there's like, there might be a couple people that have been in multiple drafts with me. So I know what I can see. Okay. Well, that guy took this guy in round 15. So if I really want this guy, I'm going to have to push him up. Um, stuff like that. I think, and I, and like, I, I've noticed that I'm kind of paranoid people are doing that with me because I've been in this draft with this other guy right now. And he just took a guy um, that I took in the other draft earlier than I took him in the first draft. So I think it, it's like you're the hunt, the hunters becoming the hunted. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how it's going to work though. I mean, that's, yeah, it's fun. Uh, that's, how, that's how EDP moves. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> If it if it gets to move in this current draft, I'm in. Um, we're now we're now under 20 minutes for. Uh, oh boy, oh boy, you almost get to make the pick. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask, like, have you when you're doing this much volume, have you ever um, done some really outside the box builds? And I'm kind of thinking specifically with starting pitching. Uh, like I know, like Dalton Del Don uh, did did his sort of crazy thing was that like a year ago or yeah. two years ago um like have you ever tried anything just really outside the box that you wouldn't do in like a main event or something like that and, and how did it go if, if if so yeah like um like you're talking this year or any year like just last yeah. year this year yeah yeah for sure like um i'd say like i've been doing this is like my third year i'd say the first year i tried some really outside the box things and just like by just drafting really 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 bad teams so that's not, like I'm not knowing anything how this works. That's, that's not outside the box at all. <laughs> actually, no, you're actually, that's kind of uh, more inside the box than outside. But yeah, so the first year was just like just drafting bad teams. Um, last year and like uh, this, the last two years, sometimes like in, like if you draft volume, you take some extreme values to come to you. And and if you if you had a pitching heavy start, and this is happening right now, and some crazy values are going uh, are coming to you from um, for pitchers, and, and I just know that these pitchers are never going to be available in those rounds. And you're playing an overall contest, then yeah, I'll pivot and I'll go heavy pitcher and try and make it up for hitting. But there comes a pivotal point in these drafts where you you've done it maybe once or twice. Let me say twice you've taken the, the pitcher because it's a great value. Do you go back to the well and grab that third value for pitcher because everyone else is it's sort of a, a snowball effect because everyone else is realizing that all these pitchers are going, but all the bats are going off the board. So all the people are sort of pushing. You have, you have to, everyone's adapting, pushing bats up. So at, in turn, you're going to continue to see those, like those values at pitcher. So there comes a pivotal point where it's like, you got to draw a line in the sand and say, stop that. Um, I did. I, I remember one draft I did last year. It was, it was just an NFBC 50, 50 buck, 50 buck league, but I was getting like, what I thought to be amazing values at starting pitcher. And what happened was I think I got Burns and Woodruff and Gosman and Cease, like all on the same team, but my closers suffered, my hitting suffered. Um, and all those pitchers stayed relatively healthy, 
And I really never got to like use it. I think I drafted Kyle Wright, like at the end of the draft, he barely made my starting lineups at times. So I really like, it comes to a point of like, you really have to draw a line in the sand. And, and if you are going to take those extreme values, you gotta, you can't keep it going all draft. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that definitely, that kind of rings true. Like what you're kind of describing with like, um, especially in like an NFBC 50, uh, 12 team league, you can, you can sort of just end up with a pitching staff. That's just way better than you need it to be. Yeah. Um, and like that, obviously I'm sure that happened to you, um, plenty last year that, yeah. uh, happened to me in one. And, and so, um, I, I already like, since these are like my first drafts of the year, right? Like I'm very still fresh off of what worked and what didn't work, uh, last year. Yeah. And it's gonna just naturally affect sort of my biases this year. Um, and sort of what you are describing with, uh, the starting pitching falling, like, you know, what, how do you compare this sort of the top 20, 30 or so starting pitchers, uh, in the pool to previous years? Cause to me, it, it seems like there's, there's more guys that I would be very just comfortable with as like my SP two, I feel yeah. like than there were last year. Um, but I also, you know, part of it is that, that we are in October and obviously, you know, three of the top 25 starting pitchers probably won't be as healthy as they are now when we get to opening day. Um, but do you think in general, there might just be more healthy quality starting pitching, um, than in past years? Um, like at the very, yeah. at the very top, like kind of, you know, top 25, top 30 type of guy. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's why you, I think the market agrees with that. I think that's why you're seeing like barely any pitchers go in the first round, um, in these, in these early drafts. But I also think it's a function of um, the hitting being um, really falling off in certain mm -hmm. positions. I think you're going to get to some of those questions. The, um, the hitting really falls off, uh, like specifically with certain positions. And it's more um, it's more of that than um, maybe the pitching being better. And I think you see like, there's also pitching, doing these drafts, I always feel like I regret taking a pitcher over a hitter because there always seems to be um, a surplus of pitching in terms of like how I value them throughout the draft um, until a certain point. I think it does, it does stop at a certain point. I think mm -hmm. around like even before you've round 23, where you feel like your rosters, I think around round 21, you better get your pitching. Um, but I think it is, I think hitting, hitting becomes uh, a surplus at that point, but until then pitching is at a surplus and um, I think it's just the hitting is just really, really unknown. I think you have a lot of, you have a lot of, um, you, we haven't seen any like pitchers take that next step. We're only sort of betting on the come and um, pitching seems really deep because you got guys got like Giolito, Barrios, Trevor Rogers, they've fallen out of the top tier, but they're still in that tier in that tier with ADP with like your sunny grays and, and all those, like, uh, all the pitchers like that. So it's like you really have, like, a very – like, a lot of depth with starting pitching. And um, hitters are beginning beginning to get platooned. And um, 
the DH didn't do as much as I thought it was going to do. So they're just more bad hitters, I think. Yeah, I mean, let's we can kind of jump to those those questions sort of while we're on the topic because I, uh, I I think I subconsciously was going after infielders early in my first two drafts before we kind of got to, you know, rounds 30, 35, that type of thing. Um, but I'm really glad I did because like say from round um, 25 to 35, it just seems like the best player available to me is always either a starting pitcher or an outfielder. And like, I think you, at least for me, just based on the way I'm kind of valuing certain players, you really have to shore up your starting infield, obviously. But even, like, I, I think shortstop just completely falls off a cliff after, like, the 22nd best shortstop. Um, and I'd say similarly, maybe not quite as dramatic with, like, first base after, like, the – 30th best guy so once you're kind of into the reserve rounds you might just not be able to find a guy that you like at all to back anyone up um, at some of those infield spots I think you nailed it there James Um, and I think you're even at an advantage over other people because you you have the knowledge of the of the prospects coming up but I did the uh, I did I think I shared it with you the um, position eligibility coming into next year just just not including the minor league players and just players that had played in the last year, first base and shortstop were the, the the scarcest positions in terms of availability. So there's only 72 players available, um, uh, eligible at first base, 76 at shortstop, and then you're into the high 90s at second and third. And you got to think some of those first basemen are catchers that also have first base eligible eligibility. And you got guys like Pujols that are gone. So first base is really scarce. And looking at this before we did the show, shortstop kind of surprised me how few shortstops there are. However, um, the flip side to that is the prospects that are coming up in the minor leagues. A lot of them have shortstop designations that um, because they're like the best players are getting called up and then they'll shift to different positions, like probably like Volpe, right? Uh, he's got it. He'll probably be shortstop eligible. I'm assuming don't, I don't have it in front of me, but he, yeah, he will be when he debuts. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he, but he probably won't be next year. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's uh and it makes it makes sense that shortstop and or it makes sense that second base and third base at least to me would have more guys eligible because you know second base is kind of just where you can just throw anyone right like so as long as they were there for 20 games you know a lot of these guys that are eligible at second base aren't going to play any second base this year or or certainly not 20 games but they just happened to last year because pretty much anyone can play second base and um, third base, you have, you know, that's a spot where like former shortstops can end up or, or sometimes guys will play third and second. Um, but like there's only kind of a set number of guys that are good enough defensively to, to play shortstop in the big leagues. And a lot of those guys just can't hit at all. Um, so, you know, you got your guys like Taylor Walls and Andrew Velasquez and Geraldo Perdomo and guys like that that are eligible at shortstop, but like you, you don't want to be plugging those guys in. Um, you might have to, but um, that's that's probably the one thing I would mention to like anyone doing their first draft is uh, 
just, you know, when, whenever there's a tie, at least go with the infielder. And specifically, if you can get uh, your corner infielder to be a second first baseman and your, your middle infielder to be a second shortstop, um, that would be my recommendation. I honestly think outfield is pretty ugly too. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess what, what's your, um, I think outfield is ugly. Like outfield gets really ugly after like round 12, like in their around 10 to 12 and and that range, like when you're looking, when, when, like when you took in our draft, when you took those players, like in rounds 10 through 12, um, after that, it's like all these guys are sort of like guys that are like, okay, yeah, they're going to get some playing time, but they're really, either lack upside or they lack consistent or they, their, their platoon risk. There's, there's something, there's some warts on them. And then, um, but, but you're right. Once you get to like those, like round 25 through 35, then yeah, outfield is at a surplus versus the infield. But I think the infield's at a surplus versus the outfield in like the, the latter stages of filling out your active roster. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you're right on that. It's, I guess with outfield, what's your, like, in just an average 15 team DC, like how many players are you usually leaving the draft with who are eligible at outfield? Like what, what like, is it sort of 10, 10, to 10, 10, 10, but like last year I'm trying to, so last year, every, every, like not everyone, but like the mindset was don't draft an outfielder earlier because there's so many good ones you can get later. It's the easiest position to fill there. A lot of them have power and, and you can get some speed. So wait on outfield. And I did, um, I did that for, I followed that mantra, I guess. But this year, like I said, outfield really drops off. Like after the first, like say even eight rounds, and you're and you're you're getting you're dipping into guys um, that are very much just like um, unproven. Um, so my my stance this year is get outfielder. Like if I have, outfield is almost like a tiebreaker over infield early for me this year. Well, yeah, I think I I like kind of getting. I'd like to have two outfielders in the first, whatever, um, eight, nine rounds. Uh, yeah. Because that's, that's, you know, that, inevitably I'm, I'm banking on probably 40 steals from my first two outfielders. If everything goes, goes great or, or 30 steals at least. Um, I'm trying to extract value, but yeah, like at the same time, I, I want, I want a closer. I want three pitchers. So you're, you're left with like four position players and, in the first 10 rounds and um, like sometimes shortstop, you can, you can sort of push first base, man. Like if you don't get a first base in the first 10 rounds, you're waiting, you're going to end up waiting and you're going to wait till round 20. You're going to have nothing left. And so that's, that's a very dangerous one to, to, to wait on. Um, but yeah, there's, you're going to have holes in these 15 team leagues. It's just a matter of like what, what the best thing to do is where you can, where you can get the value later. It's, it's tough. Yeah, and I I think um, and it definitely was not it's not a bad thing to take outfield early. Um, like I think what I kind of meant with the depth is there's just there's kind of more players who you know kind of like uh, I don't know like a, a, just guys that have have made the majors but haven't necessarily solidified themselves as everyday guys, but guys that have some power and some speed, and you know you'll you'll take maybe three or four of those guys in a fifty round draft and hope to hit on one or two as guys that you can 
rely on. But then like in those same rounds where, you know, you might be taking a, like a, a Cal Mitchell or like a Trace Thompson or someone like that. Um, you're the, the, the positions like shortstop and first base, the, the comparable players available in those rounds, like there's, there's nothing to dream on at all. You're just taking a guy who's eligible at that position and is going to make, you hope is going to make the active roster out of spring training, but that's not even a guarantee. And then if they do play, you just know they're not going to perform that well. You're just getting plate appearances. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I meant. Like, I, yeah, definitely, you know, a lot of these guys are, are high risk, but at least there's something there. Yes. One of the thoughts that goes through my head when I'm in these drafts right now, I mean, like three of them right now, is like, I know it goes against everything that we've sort of taught ourselves. It's like, do I, do I think about drafting like a backup first baseman before I even finish my outfield? Like when we get to that point or, or before I finish my pitching staff, do I take my, if you have your, if you have a first baseman, third baseman and a corner infielder and like you filled your utility, are you going to take a second? Do I take a second first baseman before I finish, before I finish my pitching staff? And that's something that that's a thought that's going through my head at this point. And as news comes out, things will change and there'll be players that like we know are going to be called up, Matt Mervis or someone like that. That's going to change the landscape. But right now it's like, you feel very, uh, very vulnerable in these drafts right now. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, Matt Mervis, it didn't take any time at all for the market. to. So I was, I was in the first draft (laughs) on NFPC like that. Well, our draft started first, but then I was in the first mm-hmm. draft that got to the later rounds. Matt Mervis wasn't even in the player pool. And right. um, usually in these drafts, like in, throughout the season, if you want to take somebody that's a placeholder and not in the player pool, I'm never going to take them before like round 48 because like, what are the odds someone is going to want that same player? Matt Mervis was uh, taken as a placeholder before pick 300 in the first draft. So I'm like, okay, well, that first draft, like, play, 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 <laughs> play, it, was, it, was, it was right in placeholders. I think I took like probably five of them myself mm-hmm. because just you got and then the 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 ADP will shake out on those players. But I was surprised. I was even shocked at how many placeholders were being taken. Yeah, and I mean Matt Mervis is a perfect example of like a guy where you know if you're a volume drafter, you'll get your Matt Mervis's you know where he falls past yeah. where he should. And then like the player who's only doing, you know, three drafts all season, if they really want Matt Mervis, they might take yes. him to pick, you know, two forty five or something. And yep. then you've kind of um screwed it up there. Uh but like, you know, at first base, I've been taking like I've been getting let's see, in the first one I got Goldie, in the second one I got Pete Alonzo. But then in both of those, I took Rowdy Telez for my corner, like in the, you know, pick 150, pick 160, something like that, just because I just wanted 30 plus homers. And just, a, I know that he's, you know, at worst, he's going to short side platoon, but he even played more against lefties, I think, than people realized last year. Um, but like, you don't want to be like, I need Matt Mervis to be my corner guy. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. you, you want him to be your util or maybe even on your bench, uh, which I was fortunate enough to do. in I think the, the Rob D league, 
I think I've got him or no, I've got him as sort of a placeholder for Bryce Harper for hopefully he gets outfield eligibility. But um, yeah, I mean, you, you don't want to have your eye set on a first baseman you really like that's going like late 200s because a lot of people are going to be eyeing up that same guy. And then if you miss on Mervis or you miss on like Seth Brown or whoever, um, you know, there, there could be a pretty big drop off there to, to the next best available. The downside of uh, reaching on those players like a Mervis, uh, if you're doing a couple of drafts and you want him, you end up allocating um, over allocating your resources to, to one position because, uh, or you could, um, it's a risk because you'll end up getting Mervis and then you'll also be getting like uh, another like kind of crappier corner infielder along with like, I think I paired like Rendon with someone when I didn't even really want Rendon, but he was like sort of the last corner option available. And I'm like, what if this, what if this rookie doesn't even, what if the player doesn't even come up with a team? Like same, say it's Mervis, right? Like that's sort of unknown. So I pair it with a shitty veteran and um, sort of cover your bases, but you're allocating two of those earlier picks to the same position, which really um, handcuffs you throughout the rest of the draft. Yeah. And I I mean, I thought that, like I thought with a guy like Mervis and um, I mean, there's other examples, like um, I think you, did you take uh do you take Jordan Walker in one of these, or? Yeah, I took, yeah, that's the example that. Uh, yeah, I took Walker and Rendon together in one in one of the other drafts. I didn't take Rendon in another draft. Yeah, like you got yeah. like, to. Uh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. There, there's there's guys like that, like Mervis Walker. Um, I'm sure there are others that I, I if I had like planned this out better, I would have off the top of my head. But like guys where I sort of thought the early ADP would be you know, Matt Mervis is going around pick 360 and then, you know, we get to January and maybe he's going around pick 320 and then we get, you know, first day of spring training and he starts getting inside the top 300. But I've definitely noticed that with a lot of these guys, uh, the market's just very kind of sharp. Um, And some guys that you might think, oh, I like that guy more than anyone. Um, like Lars Newtbar is an example. Um, like Rob DiPietro took him way before I thought I needed to consider him. Same. And I really wanted Lars Newtbar, but um, there's a lot of examples like that just through these first couple drafts I've done where I thought I was going to be able to just get this guy and I'd be the highest person on him for sure. And it's just, you know, a lot of sharp rooms so far. So um, it is. That's the thing when you draft, when you draft early, you, you draft a lot of people that want to draft early, right? Except for the people that time that, except for the people that time that in a four-hour draft. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that I mean, you are gonna. It is gonna be a lot of. Um, yeah, I think you're. I think you're right though. Like the, wor- the worst is when the worst is when you're in a four-hour draft and there's somebody timing out or almost timing out on a four hour clock. Yeah. He's making really good picks and taking the players you want. Like that's, that's the worst. Yes. That <laughs> is the worst. Um, okay. So that guy, he, he autoed Jose Ramirez. That's a good um, pick. That's a great auto. Would that have been, is he the default four? Probably. Or did he have him in his queue? I'm not sure. Not sure. Um, but yeah, that's that's fine. Jose Ramirez at four. He would have been my best available after Turner, Cunha, J Rod. Yeah, so good for him. Yep. Um now we're on 
we're five picks into this thing. Um, you get Otani coming off the uh, off the board now, right? Uh, Soto went Soto went five. Uh, we'll see. We'll see who really? Doran takes at at six. Um, have you already just been kind of? Do you go straight butter with your with your uh, KDS, or have you started kind of trying to time it so that you're picking in different sort of, you know, one through five, six through ten? 11 through 15 or is it just the market's still so yeah. fluid that doesn't really matter where you're drafting right now? No, I like, I like the top, like I like the top four. I'm happy with any of those. And I don't, I don't like being stuck on the ends of the draft in these, in these DCs. So I don't want like, as much as I like Trey Turner, or whatever the first couple picks I'm, I don't think there's enough of a difference between those like Trey Turner, J-Rod, Acuna, J-Ran. I'll take the fourth pick. I'll, I'll start, I'll set my KDS four, three, two, one. And then I'll sort of mix up the middle based on like where I think people are going to fall out and like 14 and 15 are definitely last because when you're in a draft, let's say you're like picking sixth and you see like there's values that fall in the draft. And if you're picking on the, the turn, if you're like the number one pick, like DuPont is in our league or fish is on fish and IR on the other end, mm-hmm. you're waiting the whole way around. And like, okay. Like, especially in those rounds, like four through seven, like this guy should not be in the seventh round. Like this guy should be a fifth round pick, but you have to wait at 20, yeah. like you have to wait for like 14 other people to also pass on, which barely ever happens. Being in the middle is just like so nice and sort of like, just like picking off those values. So I try to stay away from the ends of the drafts personally. I know people like the ends, but I, I don't like it. And I think there's a top four. So I go four, three, two, one, and then probably like eight, eight, seven. And then I just keep all the, the high numbers at the end. Yeah, I think in, if you just said you have no idea what the player pool is any given year, I'd like to be in the middle. Although this year specifically, like I don't really want to be right in the middle just because I think the guy I might take it. I don't know. I think that there's a tier that kind of just blends together for me of of hitters that would go anywhere from pick like seven to pick 17 and – I don't want to have to take like the first one of those guys, but um, I, yeah, I'm probably just overthinking it and, and overweighting um, what's happening in the first round. Um, with regard from, a ro- to- from a roster construction thingy, um, I don't like being at the end because if, if, if you are going to take a starting pitcher in round two, you're going to be, I feel like you're sort of reaching relative to like what the other values are going to get. Like I'll be just, I'm, I'm almost as happy getting one of the pitches that go at the end of round two or beginning of round three as like, as I am with the pitchers that are going this at the start and the way things are right now, people are mixing and matching. You'll see, you'll see like I've seen cease at the end of round one, but I've also seen him in round three. So it's like, I'll just, I'll take, I'll, I'll be happy with the pitcher that goes there. And I think if you, and also it gives you the flexibility. If you want to go with um, like a stud closer, you're probably going to be, you're, you're likely going to be able to get one at yeah. fair value at that first part of that draft. Whereas that second it's just it's just a nice sweet spot for for drafting closers without reaching on them in that yeah, first half of the draft. I totally agree with that on the closers. I mean, you don't want to be picking at the the fourteen fifteen turn if no. you want if you want a good closer because there's just no value. Um, yeah, and then again, you, yeah, if you, if you pass on the, the two or three elite closers there, then you're going to be in round three. It's going to come back to you at the end of round three, and you really want to start reaching on the next year of closers there. Mm-hmm. Like right, probably, like the, probably not. The, yeah, the the sort of 
Hendrix Romano guys like feel much better at the end know, of like around, in round, in round, like, in round four. Yeah, round, like middle round four. That's where those guys. That seems like a good spot for them. Whereas, you know, taking them at pick forty-four or forty-five or something like that just doesn't. Um, it's not not very fun. Uh, but that actually does uh, bring us to another uh, question. I wanted to know if you're how much your strategy for um, closers and catchers varies when you're doing this much volume and not necessarily specific players, but just like I've, I've gotten very comfortable with, with paying up on closers and catchers kind of relative um, to what I think kind of an average drafter maybe does. But when you're doing that many leagues, do you kind of switch up strategies at those two positions at all? Mm. It's hard to say right now what I'm going to do. I'm still feeling out how the ADP is going to fall. But right now, um, I've taken a pretty similar strategy for catcher. I haven't, I don't, I ha- I've seen the value in the catchers after the first tier, like after the Rimotos and Will Smiths. I, I see the I see the better value in the tier after that. So I usually dip into that tier and then I'll get one more like before it turns into like the the guys that just like have no upside, like like Narvarez or whatever, right? Like, I'll, I'll make sure I, I'll, I'll try to get to I'll try to get my second right before there. Um, but yeah, in terms of allocating the resources there and then closers, like I, I definitely want to get one before the end of that tier that falls off in round five, wherever you want to cut it off. And this year, I haven't been ever dipping into a second closer, like, unless until later, like until round 15 at least. Um, whereas last year, I was um, sometimes doing the two early closers, and I was some, and, I, and most often, more often than not, I would have two by the end of round 10 at least. So I'd be, like last year, I'd be dipping into one really good one that I thought was really good, and then I'd be taking like a Kimbrel or a Knebel or a Taylor Rogers. And or a Chapman, which you just list listing off all the the money second closers, yeah, yeah, all, the, all those amazing closers <laughs> that worked out so well. Actually, Taylor Rogers, Taylor Rogers, amazing. Yeah, he was 20, 28 saves in half a year. Then he turned into he turned into terrible. He turned terrible, well, but didn't matter fine. because he fine. got you. He got you all the saves you needed in half the year. Then you could replace him with whatever else you wanted to. Right, it was uh, almost yeah. better than any, almost better than anything. Yeah, that, that works out pretty nice. Um, yeah. Do you think the changing it up um, this year compared to last year with, you know, waiting on the second closer. Is that more about um, just liking some of the values on like, maybe there are three or four guys that are constantly going like after pick 200 that you feel decent about, or is it just like the fact that we're in October and you just have no idea what's going to happen with a lot of these bullpens? I think it's both, but I think it has a lot to do with how bad, the hitter, the hitter pool falls off um, after round six through eight, or even before that, maybe. I think just the the elite hitters are just so bunched up at the front that I just have I'm just having a really tough time passing on like a hitter for that second closer, like for to take Helsley or whoever it is there, like a Bedna or Felix Bautista or, or Bard to passing on an elite bat for those guys to like have them as my second closer. And maybe I'll have something I'll have to get comfortable with. I just have not been able to, I just haven't been able to 
make myself want to do that yet, but something that I'll have to feel out. Yeah. I mean, there have, there are a handful of, of relievers that I like that are going relatively late, but I've also noticed that, you know, the guys like Edbert Alzale is someone that I, that I like um, just the opportunity and um, you know, how he performed as a reliever, but he gets pushed way higher than I would have expected. Um, and I think, I think this is your strategy of sort of waiting. Um, like I, I saw, like I like Tanner Hawk and I saw him go like well inside the top 300 and, in, in one of the ones I'm in, um, if I remember correctly. So I feel like a lot of people are kind of doing what you're doing and those guys just all sort of fly off the board in that, that sort of 250 to 350 range. So, um, I don't know. I, I like it. I, I like getting like a third guy there, but I, at least in my first two, I've. So Hawk has gone 390, 329, 350, 398, 380, 298. You were probably, you might've been in that one or, uh, and then 332. Maybe the two, the 298 might've been our draft. Okay. Yeah. Maybe it was. No, okay. no it wasn't. I, I, uh, let me see. I think it might have been the this other one I'm in. Um, but yeah, I got him like I in our draft. I think I actually got Hawk at like pick three eighty. Three eighty. Yeah, um, that's, which, that's close to his max. At, uh, all these drafts I've seen. Yeah, I mean, if the, there are like, and I, I think I got like David Robertson goes pretty late. Like um, Robertson, AJ Puck. Um, Robertson has an ADP of three fifty four across my seven drafts. Like Puck. Yeah, Puck. Puck is ADP across those seven drafts is 404. Min of 365, max of 466. What about Jorge Lopez? Jorge Lopez. Nicky Lopez, Otto Lopez, Renato Lopez, Pablo Lopez. There you go. 256 ADP, min 159. In the first, in the first, the very first draft, max of three hundred seven is a huge, yeah. huge range, and that that's I think he's just fascinating because that makes sense to me that, that that it's that big of a range because when yeah. I did when I did the first one, I think if you, I think I foolishly thought that Lopez would be going kind of by Joan Duran or or you know maybe even in front of him, uh, and the market very adamantly prefers Duran. I know it's, that, that surprised me actually. Um, Lopez wasn't as effective after the trade as he was with Baltimore, but he was dominant with Baltimore and like the twins definitely targeted him. And they, they also avoided using Duran as a closer when he was clearly the best reliever before that. So I, I thought that was interesting. Um, I, I also completely underestimated how excited people would be for Alexis Diaz. Um, <laughs> Same here. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And you know what? It's consistent every draft. ADP one forty nine. And, and it's I thought, and it's so it's so it's the there's no variance either. Yeah, because I it thought in our division. our first one, like the one we're in, like he went. I think like he, him and Duran went right next to each other, um, and I I was just like, wow, like. Like holy crap! Um, and I didn't even look at like what Alexis 
I didn't have Alexis Diaz anywhere last year, but um, and then he went like in the same spot in my second one. I was like, crap. And what's going on? Something, with that you know what? His his numbers in the like the last two months, like were like his peripherals were insane. Yeah, yeah. No, they so when I, I looked at him, like yeah, that. I mean, it does kind of check out. I've just I've kind of trained myself to not take Reds relievers, um, and. I just was planning on doing the same thing this year. I was trying, I've been trying to train myself on not talking about this and letting everyone <laughs> keep drafting him. <laughs> but all, um, all, all, all my, all my friends I talked to about this, uh, I'm like, okay, we can't talk about these players that are going too early <laughs> because we want people to keep drafting them. So, well, and so, I, yeah, no, and Alex, Alex Diaz is an amazing pick. Like I, I've been, I, I've been trying to get Alex <laughs> Diaz in all my drafts. Like, like his ADP is so good. Like pick 150. Phenomenal. Like let's, I, I, I sign off on that. Yeah. I mean, he, he's, yeah, he's a, a name that are, all the, all the sharp people are on. All and, the sharp, sharp. Peripherals are insane. Um, yeah. I can't say enough good things about Alexis Diaz. I also, I, so I thought Duran would be going in kind of a range where it was sort of palatable as like, you know, maybe you take, uh, I don't know, you take like a Romano and then you take a Clay Holmes and then you take Duran as like your, your third reliever, um, definitely not doable um, where oh. he's going. And then I thought Andres Munoz would maybe be a guy that would be going in sort of third reliever territory as well. Nope. He's and, going to have a seawall. He's going to have a seawall. It's kind of similar. I mean, Seawald at least saved those games with the team that he's currently on. But um, Seawald's an ace reliever. The C, yeah, the Seawald yeah. Munoz thing, and then the Duran Jorge Lopez thing, I just think is very interesting. Um, wow. That the market is very kind of obviously the skills. Like I'm well aware of like Munoz and Duran's skills, and you know, there's something to be said for drafting skills. But I just didn't think that just right from the jump, everyone would be like, these are the <laughs> these are the guys to have in those those bullpens. Before the curtain was pulled up, I thought like when we saw like everyone drafting, we see ADP now. I would have expected Munoz and Duran. Duran. I would have expected Duran to go ahead of Munoz. And I think he mm-hmm. might be, but I would expect them to go about in the same place that Devin Williams was going last year. That's where I thought they would be going, but they're going much higher. But at the same time, Devin Williams is clear, clear, right. clearly a backup where these guys have sort of some sort of there's some sort of ambiguity, ambiguity with their, their teams. But yeah, they're going higher than I thought they would. So I got I got none of them. Yeah, I mean, I, and there's obviously there's there's upside there, but um, I there's just some there's I there's like a pressure sort of off me and just kind of a, a comfort that I feel when I've got two guys, uh, you know, by pick uh, or say two guys before like the end of the tenth round, and then I could just kind of go after everything else for for a few for for a bit, but um, I do. I have noticed that in certain drafts there there are values on the reliever side that I really like that I don't uh, jump on because I've already got two. But um, let's see, uh, what else do we got here? Um, oh yeah, I, I did want to ask: uh, is the, is there a most surprising early ADP for you that we haven't touched on? Um, kind of, let's say first. 10 rounds or so like just one player where when it when the curtain got pulled like you said you were just kind of um really surprised by um looking at a board right now um 
in like uh, he was going lower than expected or higher than expected. Or well, like I remember your you had a tweet about uh, last year. You were really surprised by where like Miles Straw was going, um, and you were kind oh, of yeah. teasing that. I don't remember if you. I didn't see if you ever. Uh, I didn't say anything because I said to myself last year when I when I started teasing Miles Straw, I'm like, I don't know. I don't think I, I don't think I moved the market or anything like that. But I'm like multiple like at first he was going for the sixth or seventh round then everyone's sort of like ah mile straw mile straw and then he started falling because everyone's like okay what are we doing here um so all right well yeah i mean you even you changed your like twitter handle to yeah you know funny because people thought i actually liked mile straw but i had no no shares of him um i thought he was just like he was my you can't do sarcasm doesn't work on twitter no it doesn't people actually yeah it doesn't at all um Oh, whatever. I, to, I already, I already told people we can't, we can't say this name. I'm like, don't say this name on podcast because we want people to keep drafting. Before. You invited me on here, James. Um, my guy that I think is the biggest boss in the first hundred picks is, is, is Rice Iglesias. Okay. And this, and this is before, um, this is before like even the news of Anthopolis saying Kenley Jansen, but like, man, like, the whole thing was he wasn't even that great last year. Like he was really good when he got to the Braves, but the whole thing was like, oh, he can't pitch in a setup role. Guess what? He was way better in a setup role than he was in a closer role last year. Um, his skills are good, but um, not that great. The, the Braves have shown they wanted to bring it back Jansen. They could bring in someone else. Like at this point in time, like taking Glacius, like, yeah, like right now, I guess he's like maybe the de facto closer on their team and, October, but like man, like taking him, like I seen him go in the third round in these drafts. Really, crazy, wow. to me, crazy to me. Sorry, guys, I had to. I had cats in the bag, um, and I could be, I could be dead wrong, and I could, I could like there is, a, there is obviously that that percentage chance, and it's not a small percentage that the Braves don't sign someone, and he becomes their closer, and he lights out, and he's amazing. There, there is that chance, but I'd say there's pretty solid chance that's not like not, not the option, and you could be like throwing away a pick in the first couple rounds just like no so i would i would take felix bautista devin williams and ryan helsley over iglesias i would take daniel Hart over iglesias easily what about uh doval easily yes what about kenley jansen easily Easily Kenley Jansen, okay. Easily Kenley Jansen over Iglesias. No, no question about it. What about sorry, sorry reliever recon boys if you're listening? But what about the guy that I got stuck with after you took Doval when we started up the eighth round, uh, Scott Barlow? Uh, yeah, I, like if push comes to shove, I would take Barlow over Iglesias. Yes. What about Clay Holmes? Yeah, I still would. Um, I'm kind of worried about that health, but yes, I would take Clay Holmes over Iglesias. I'm worried. I, 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 I would take Jose Leclerc over Iglesias at this point. Jeez. Actually, no. Ah, no, no, no. I'm just now. Now I'm getting crazy. I uh, might. I'm pushing no. back on. I'm, nah, I'm even nah, going to nah, push nah. back on the Daniel Bard part. Um, oh no, Daniel Bard for sure. Daniel Bard was amazing. He's an, he's a closer. They signed him. Like he's not going to do that. He's not going to do that again. I agree with that, but uh, he's there's no way Daniel Bard puts up back to back years as like an ace closer I, okay closer. what do you define ace closer yeah i mean i guess i mean he he only needs to save 25 games exactly. that's the number i was thinking can you get can daniel bar get you 25 saves I'm like yeah, i bet on daniel bar 25 saves over rice glacius 25 saves right now today since 
Brian Slack never listens to this, but would you take uh, David Bednar over Iglesias? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I have to tell Slack. All right. Um, yeah, I, I'm I know, already. I know, the, I know. I know. Mining the news said that Bednar is going to be used in high leverage, but he's. I think he's a better pitcher. I am. I am pretty bullish on on Holmes. Um, more for kind of the upside than anything, um, but I I gotta be careful there and not not uh, get too much of him. Um, let's see. Uh, Got a couple more questions for you. Um, okay. Uh, these will be fun. Uh, two more and then we'll wrap it up. Sure. Um, what what will be the worst take slash bit of analysis that makes the rounds this offseason for fantasy baseball analysis? Fuck, I don't know. Uh, that's a tough question. Something Frank and Kev say, say I guess. Say, say, say that again? <laughs> Something Frank and Kev say, I guess, is the worst. <laughs> probably, I don't know. Uh, no, I don't know. Um, it's gonna be like what, like the Vladdy, like the like white, or what, what were some bad takes this year? Like Miles Straw was a bad take. I don't know. Um, I think you're. I think you're gonna have, like. I see like the like. I see like all these rookies like we we're talking about getting pushed up. I could see someone like saying like Grayson Rodriguez over Kevin Gossman. Like you're gonna. You're gonna oh get, yeah, yeah. You're gonna get people. You're gonna get people saying that like Grayson Rodriguez, amazing. Like he's already getting pushed up more than I thought, and you're gonna say like, yeah, I'm gonna draft Grayson like big, in my big leagues. I'm taking him over like Gosman or Musgrove or something like that. You're gonna have people say that, which I think is just like right. I mean, I'm I'm already priced out on on Rodriguez, just not even close. Where's he? What's his uh, ADP on the? I'll tell you, I got him in one of them, and I'm never gonna get him at that price again. Um, Grayson, I'll tell you, Grayson. Search when I've highlighted multiple cells. All right. His ADP is 221, but he's gone 299, 193, 237, 185, 190, 249, 197, 218. I got him at the 299 in round 20. So there's my share. I feel like I think I'm in ones where he's been going towards the high end of that, but. um, Oh, maybe. I don't don't have all of them here. I mean, 290. I mean, anything like in the mid 200s, I think is totally fine. I. I was sort of getting, I think I got the sense through the first two I did where he was going like regularly kind of mid 100s, which uh, I would not agree with. Um, I'm trying to think of what could be. He didn't didn't have a lot of innings that he pitched last year. I don't know. Anyways, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just trying to think of like what could be um, the worst take. I must, yeah, it's, that, that's a crazy take that I can think of. I don't know. Like, it's hard to think of like what people are going to come up with. Yeah, that's true. Um, I'm always on the lookout though. I did, I did think it was funny um, in the one we're in with uh, that Rob set up with a bunch of uh, people. We all know how, I don't know. Do you, did that one set the, the max on uh, Adolis Garcia? Yeah, it had to have. Well, I'll check, but like, there's a lot of matches on that draft because of I, what went into place. I just thought it was so funny because, like, I think nobody in that draft wanted to be the person that took Adolis Garcia. Same thing as last year, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yeah, it was, it was a max by far. It yeah, it's one, like you don't want to be when you got a bunch of like you know analysts slash you know people that 
talk about this stuff on Twitter and stuff. Like nobody wanted to be the person that took Adolis Garcia. Um, I would have, I would have smashed that if I if it fit my team. But I had all these hitters at first. I needed I, I didn't have a closer by that time. I didn't I needed pitching. So like, yeah, like if I didn't need, if I didn't need a closer and I I took Duval there, I would have taken Adolis Garcia probably. How would you rank Adolis Garcia, Byron Buxton, and Luis Robert? Like just in a vacuum? Just like you're on the clock in the, I don't know, you need oh, like, an outfielder in the middle ir- of the... Like ir- irrespective of cost? Yeah, because I don't, I don't see a huge difference between those three personally. I don't know what the ADP says. Probably Lou Bob and Adolis and Buxton as much as... Sorry, sorry. Bucks and last. Bucks has got to be last. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe I'm still too close to just had had Lou Bob on two of eleven NFBC teams last year, and that was too too many. Um, I had him on my good main event team. I took him in the first round. If yeah, I, didn't, if I, if I couldn't. I couldn't imagine what I what I could have done if he wasn't my first pick. He was not, <laughs> but the thing is, you got, you got half a year of him. You get two ninety with like. Um, what was it like 12, 11, 12, 11, 290, half a year. If you can replace him, you didn't drop him. You didn't drop him soon enough, but if you could have re- replaced those stats, like it's not, he, right. didn't, he, didn't, he didn't crush you. Like he wasn't like yeah. Albies. I think I, I think I remember saying, uh, maybe writing, uh, like, I just wish that he'd gotten an Albies type of injury yeah. instead. Right. And just move on. Um, but I just I had to waste so many minutes on Friday afternoons checking to see what the White Sox lineup was, and I'll never get those minutes back. It's brutal. Um, yeah, he missed. <laughs> I think he he, he missed uh, the most games aside from Nelson Cruz, uh, injured but not on the IL. And Nelson Cruz <laughs> had that eye thing that was like weird, right? Yeah. Well, at least yeah, Cruz was an easy drop at least. Yeah. Um, true. So this was another one that I. Uh, so in the second draft I did, um, I was kind of all ready to take Jake McCarthy, like kind of, he'd fallen way past where he went in the first one, the one that we're both in. And I was like, I need some speed. And then I was just like on the clock and I was like, no, I'm not, I, I don't want to take McCarthy yet. I'm, I'm not ready to take that plunge. Um, <laughs> could you see him being, I mean, there's going to be a lot of controversial guys. We've already touched on a few, but like, I feel like there's just going to be a Jake McCarthy debate all off season about whether he's worth taking at like pick 140 or 130 or whatever. Yeah, his ADP is 152 in these seven drafts. Um, I don't know. Um, I haven't taken him yet, um, probably because I didn't get him in Fab last year. Um, so they think you're either in or you're out on him. But um, yeah, like it's. It's interesting. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to make of him um, because obviously this, he has the skills to provide what you need in, the, in this game, um, and he's not going to be. And he's he's not like a rabbit, like a Mateo or whoever. Well, Mateo is actually like he's not going to kill. He's what, what I mean is he's not going to kill you in home runs and batting average either, and he's going to get you a lot of stolen bases. So that's pretty pretty valuable. And um, I think he the discount that's getting baked into there is just the unknown of the playing time and the track record. Right. I'm very, I'm not out. I'm just, I'm kind of agnostic right now. Um, yeah. I, 
and he was great at AAA. I remember seeing that um, like July or so. Um, and they like I think there's a decent case that he's just better than Alec Thomas, like just straight up. And the Diamondbacks would be okay going with him all season, even if it meant just blocking Thomas. But um, yeah, I'm gonna have to. I feel like we're I don't know. Talk about him a decent amount. But. I haven't. I'm not comfortable with him enough to take. I haven't been comfortable enough with to take him. And um, yeah, he doesn't like. He doesn't hit the ball super hard. But I think what you've seen is the converse of him getting. He's going. He's, he's going earlier than I, I thought. But the converse is Alec Thomas is getting like almost like as an afterthought in these drafts. Yeah, I mean, he was like a top prospect um, coming up last year. People were spending 200 bucks on him or more. And he's sort of just been like left for dead. Um, so maybe there's maybe two hundred bucks on Alec Thomas. Really? Oh yeah, people spent that on him last year. Wow. Um, I mean, you are you're totally right about the like on the, at least in these first drafts. I do. I am drafting a lot of guys that I just ended the year with because I I know exactly how this player was performing over the last six weeks or whatever and. Uh, there's a comfort level there with, with those guys. Whereas if you just didn't have them on any team, um, it's kind of the opposite, but, um, all right. Any, anything else you want to, want to chat about or you good? I'm good with, I'm good with whatever you want to do. Um, well, let's, let's wrap it up. Uh, why don't you, why don't you let the listeners know, um, where they can listen or how they can listen to the podcast and where they can find you on Twitter. If, if you care about that. Um, nah, I'm good. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, dude. Um, I will uh, talk to you later and, uh, I will have a awesome guest on next week, uh, Wednesday, uh, before heading out to uh, first pitch Arizona, where I hope to see a lot of you. All right. All right. Thanks James. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.